I was angry. I'm angry as a citizen. I'm angry as a person who lives in this world and gets exposed to these chemicals all the time. And that's just bad science, you know? I'm Gordon Caddick, and this is Cited. Have you ever heard of the Invisible Gorilla Experiment? It was done in 1999 by Daniel Simons and Christopher Chabrie, and it's one of the most famous and weirdest psychological experiments out there. The setup is simple. You're shown a video and given instructions. Count how many times the players wearing white pass the basketball. There are six teenagers on screen, and they're circling around quickly, throwing a basketball back and forth. But then, totally unexplicably, this man in a gorilla suit walks into the frame. He looks straight into the camera, and he beats his chest with his fists. And then he just slowly walks off. How many passes did you count? The correct answer is 15 passes. But did you see the gorilla? Believe it or not, if you were asked to count the passes, you might not see the gorilla. About half the study participants didn't, even though it's clearly the most obvious thing in the video. The experiment is meant to show that we have selective attention. We don't merely look out into the world, we look for things. So if you want to see passes, you'll see them. But you might miss the gorilla. This is the kind of experiment that I think Thomas Kuhn would have loved. Because Kuhn thought of science in a very similar way. We find exactly what we're looking for. Kuhn is a famous historian of science, and he coined the term paradigm. Basically, he looked through the history of science and he said, you know, we think that science follows this kind of linear progression. Over generations, we get slowly closer and closer to the truth. But according to Kuhn, it's not really like that. Instead, scientists coalesce into little communities with distinct ways of seeing the world, paradigms. Your paradigm gives you your set of questions, problems, theories, tools, and methods. It's like a lens. And if you put the wrong pair of lenses on, you won't see the gorilla. Other scientists in other paradigms, they'll point out things that you don't see, things you can't explain. Then there might be a kind of paradigm battle, and potentially a full-fledged scientific revolution. One paradigm is discarded and the other prevails. Our story today is about a paradigm battle, a battle over chemicals. So let me introduce you to the reigning paradigm. It began over 500 years ago with a Swiss physician named Paracelsus. He was a true scientific iconoclast. He famously stood in front of his university and burned medical textbooks. And as a physician, he noticed that some of the most popular medicines when you took too much, they became harmful. So he developed a theory. The dose makes the poison. Basically, everything can be a poison when you take too much. Even water. Drink too many glasses and you'll die. So according to Paracelsus, we just need to figure out safe thresholds. Today, Paracelsus is known as the father of toxicology, which is the study of poison. Government regulators still basically follow his idea. They set thresholds. 
Like, if a certain number of samples in a municipal water system has 15 parts per billion of lead, then water managers have to take a look. For arsenic, it's 10 parts per billion. For nitrate, it's 10 parts per million. So in Paracelsus's paradigm, it's pretty simple. You look for thresholds. But a revolutionary group of scientists are challenging this 500-year-old idea. They argue that for many of the chemicals we use, there simply is no safe threshold. It's a big debate in academia, but it's also a debate about how governments should regulate the chemicals. And that's what we'll be focusing on today. This group of scientists say that government regulators can't see the harms of these chemicals because they're not looking the right way. They're looking for passes, but they're missing the gorilla. Freelance producer Irina Zhurov has the story. The story starts with a professor at the University of Missouri-Columbia, Frederick Vomsall. In the 1980s, Fred had a lab full of mice, and he was studying how hormones affect their development. We were focusing on what kind of damage to the fetal male reproductive system occurred with natural estrogens. Fred has glasses, neat swept-back hair, white lab coat. He's now retired, but I looked him up. In the 80s, he looked exactly the same. The man hasn't aged. Back then, he noticed that some of his mice were behaving strangely. And he wondered, could this have something to do with what happens to them in the womb? What I was doing was looking at something that was really quite novel, and that was that minute changes in sex hormones during fetal development could reprogram tissues throughout the body to function differently. So he started performing C-sections. And before he would take the pups out, yes, baby mice are called pups, he marked down where the pups were in relation to each other. And he noticed something interesting. If a male mouse happened to be squeezed in between two female siblings, he absorbed more of the hormone estrogen. Female mice squeezed between two brothers got extra testosterone. And this had huge effects. So in a very, very predictable way, a little bit of an elevation in testosterone gave you uh, differences in external genitals in both males and females and differences in the functioning of the reproductive organs in behaviors, aggression, uh, sexual behavior, how you behave towards infants. So it was uh, really startling. It just changed your life history. This is because hormones have a lot of impact on what happens in the body. Hormones control uh, the formation of the human body and the body of all mammals and actually all vertebrates. Hormones are part of the endocrine system. You can think of the system like a football team. Each of the players is like a hormone that's molded by a coach, which is like a gland. So the head coach and the assistant coach, let's call those the hypothalamus and pituitary glands. They oversee the operation. But then there are more specialized coaches, like the strength and conditioning coach and one that focuses on the running backs. Think of those as the other glands. Then there are the players. The players are the hormones, and each of them has a distinct job. One might throw the ball, one might catch, one might block. 
and they all have their own particular and important role to play in a complex, choreographed football play. This is like the endocrine system. This complicated system regulates about everything from growth to sexual function to sleep and mood. So Fred understood the power of hormones. There's nothing surprising about that. What was surprising is how just a little extra hormone could throw the whole system off. And this could occur with shifts in hormone levels in a fetus in the trillionth of a gram range in blood. Uh, I mean, just vanishingly small amounts. This just didn't make sense. According to the scientists' best understanding, you needed a lot more of a hormone to see these kinds of changes. I remember a colleague saying to me, how can these tiny differences matter? And I said, look at the consequences for these animals. So Fred published his surprising results. And soon after that, he got a call. Yeah, so I uh, was sitting in my office and I picked up the phone and it was Theo Colborn. Theo died in 2014, so we couldn't talk to her. At the time of the phone call in the late 1980s, Theo was a senior scientist for the World Wildlife Fund. She had spent months reading studies about animals in the Great Lakes, and she noticed the animals there had a high rate of birth defects, even though pollution was lower than it had been for a long time. So why was this happening? That was Theo's question. And she said to me, I just read an article of yours that I think answers what we're seeing in wildlife around the Great Lakes. Are you aware of this? And I said, no. Theo told Fred that there were cormorants that had crossed bills and crooked spines, and gulls were displaying different mating behavior than usual. Theo figured that these sorts of changes couldn't happen unless the animals were exposed to very large doses of chemicals. But Reading Fred's paper, this made her think otherwise. So Theo came up with a theory about why this was all happening. That there are chemicals in the environment that could be acting as hormone-mimicking or hormone-disrupting chemicals. Remember how I said the endocrine system is like a football team? It operates in these really tightly choreographed ways with predetermined plays. Well, imagine if a player from one team donned the uniform of the other team and slipped into the game. That player isn't going to follow the pre-designed play, and for the other players, it's just going to cause a lot of confusion. The whole game might break down. Theo was saying, maybe that's happening here. Maybe a little bit of a foreign chemical is actually just confusing the entire endocrine system. And she showed me a whole pile of studies and she, when we got together, she had this huge stack of papers with her, a uh, foot and a half high of photocopied articles. There, there may have been a few hundred. That was typical of Theo. I sat down and read them and called her up and said, my God, uh, you're right. There is a link here. If Theo was right, this could be explosive. Because if it happened to the animals in the Great Lakes, it could be happening to all of us. Could the chemicals around us be messing with our hormones, messing with reproduction, messing with life itself?
So what do scientists do when they come up with an explosive new finding that could fundamentally change the way we understand the world? Organize a conference, of course. In 1991, they gathered with other researchers at the Johnson Foundation's Wing Spread House. It's about 20 miles south of Milwaukee, right at the edge of Lake Michigan. It's an absolutely spectacularly beautiful conference site. So the setting was magnificent. It's a Frank Lloyd Wright uh, house. Theo, Fred, and other presenters laid out their potentially revolutionary idea. That there is evidence that uh, animal and human health is being compromised by a whole bunch of chemicals that disturb the endocrine system. Regulators normally test for chemicals harm by sort of going top down. And by that I mean they'll start with a high dose and then they'll pair it back to the point where they stop seeing effects. So what they're doing there is they're basically looking for the safe threshold, like Paracelsus wanted. But Fred was doing something different. He was sort of starting from the bottom up. And he was finding that at very, very low doses, he was seeing effects that just didn't make sense. But that was because the chemicals weren't acting like poisons. What they were doing was they were mimicking hormones, like that rogue player. And so this caused the endocrine system to go completely haywire. What came out at that meeting is if these chemicals were acting like hormones, then they could act at tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of times lower than what anybody had thought of before. It has created what is known in science as a paradigm inversion. We have basically taken the principles of toxicology used in chemical risk assessments and said, they absolutely do not apply to chemicals that interfere with the endocrine system. And so as the weekend wrapped up, the scientists put together a consensus statement. Fred remembers they were hammering it out at 2 o'clock in the morning, with Theo leading the charge. And she stood in the door and she said, nobody's leaving this room until I have the documents I want from you. And she was a terror. Uh, she was incredible. This consensus statement was a lot more than a simple end-of-conference wrap-up. It coined the term endocrine disruptor, and it hinted at a whole new way of seeing certain chemicals. It was life-changing for a lot of the people there. For Fred, he says Wingspread was like a religious experience and a turning point. If the folks at Wingspread are right, there might not be a safe threshold for a whole class of chemicals. Because chemicals can interact with our body in unpredictable ways. If they're right, we've been regulating some chemicals all wrong. But which ones? Fred went home after the conference and returned to his work in the lab. But this time, instead of just using natural estrogens on his mice, he started to test different synthetic chemicals with estrogenic properties. One of them was a compound called bisphenol A, usually goes by another name, BPA. I had no idea what BPA was. BPA was first synthesized in the late 1800s, and by the mid-1930s, doctors discovered that it mimicked estrogen, 
So they considered it as a drug for so-called female problems. Yeah, that very scientific term that covered everything from menopause to infertility. Eventually, they abandoned that idea. But in the 1950s, researchers found a new commercial use for BPA, making plastics and resins. When Fred gave BPA to the mice, the effects were shocking. In males, prostate cancer, and in females, mammary gland cancer. So we impacted <laughs> the pretty much the whole male reproductive system. And since then, many similar things have seen in, in females as well. It was just one of several chemicals that Fred used to dose his animals. But BPA stood out because BPA was having an effect at very low levels. BPA stood out for another reason. By then, it was in everything. Plastics take the stage at an international exhibit in Amsterdam. After the Second World War, plastic production boomed, and BPA quickly became a go-to building block for the new material. Ingenious machinery presses and stamps and molds the material into a wide variety of products, articles for household use, as well as tools for industry. It's strong, yet lightweight, performs well in heat, and it's clear. All these qualities made it perfect for a bunch of consumer products. Think baby bottles, tin can liners, toys. So if Fred's research was right, that BPA was dangerous at low levels, then he wouldn't be just threatening a scientific paradigm. He'd be threatening a global industry. In 1995, Fred says he went to the National Academy of Sciences to give a lecture on how low doses of hormones can affect the reproductive system. And in the middle of the talk, I threw up the data from a study we had just finished with BPA. He didn't think much of it at the time, just another data point in his talk. I got home to Missouri, and I pick up the phone, and there were five corporate executives on a cold conference call threatening me. They, we want your data. We want you to know how disturbed we are by what you have published. This was Dow, General Electric, Shell. So I, in the middle of the phone call, I just said, this phone call's over, and I hung up. Fred says he got an insurance policy for frivolous lawsuits. I figured they were coming after me, and I called up my colleagues, and I said, we better find out what the heck this stuff is, because we seem to have really stepped on an elephant's toe here. Fred's work didn't match what the industry scientists were seeing in their labs, that BPA was safe. So the calls kept coming in. Some of the manufacturers wanted to actually hear from Fred. But with Dow Chemical, Fred says a guy named John Wechter asked him to make the findings go away. And he said, can we arrive at a mutually beneficial outcome? And they said, uh, you know, will you withdraw this paper until it's approved for publication by the chemical industry? And we said, do you have a scientific criticism? That would be the only reason we would withdraw it. And Wechter uh, looked at us kind of sheepishly and said, well, how can you publish it? No one else has ever done it. How do you know it's true? And of course, I said, well, that's the end of modern science. You can only publish what you already know or you think you know. 
reached out to Dow. I didn't hear back from them. But in previous reports, the company has said that conversation with John Wechter, it was all a big misunderstanding. There was no effort to push inaccurate science. Fred was getting all the heat for his BPA research, but he was about to get backup. I'm Patricia Hunt. I'm a professor at Washington State University in the School of Molecular Biosciences. In the late 1990s, Patricia didn't know Fred, but she was also working on reproductive research. It had nothing to do with BPA. She was dosing mice with other hormones to try to understand why women sometimes produce abnormal eggs. But she also had control animals that weren't dosed. When suddenly our control animals, the data for our control animals went completely berserk. Usually, abnormal eggs would develop 1 to 2% of the time, but now it was over 40% of the time. It looked like the control animals had been exposed to something. But remember, they're control animals. The whole idea is they're not exposed. So what was going on here? It wasn't until the cages started to show some visible signs and the water bottles started to leak at their seams that we thought, hmm, you know, maybe this is the caging materials. They were using plastic cages on water bottles, and someone had accidentally washed them with a detergent that had a high pH, which made the plastic break down. And when we checked into this further, they were polycarbonate cages, and it was known that they were made of bisphenol A. And again, like Fred, this accidental discovery of BPA in her cages changed Patricia's focus, you know, a bit. A big bit, yes, completely changed the course of my research. This is something I heard a lot from scientists I spoke with. They were happily working on one thing, and then one way or another, they came across BPA, and it completely took over their research. I kept hearing a version of, I have other more interesting research questions, but I just can't look away from BPA, because it seems a little crazy. They wanted to understand what this stuff is and what it does to a body. And then we said, okay, can we buy this chemical and can we expose our mice to small amounts of it to try and determine exactly how much of it is necessary to to induce the effects? Like Fred, she found that a small amount of BPA can have drastic effects. But Patricia says it's even weirder than that. Small amounts of these chemicals may induce very striking effects. But as you increase the dose, those effects may disappear or they may turn into something completely different. Yes, more of an endocrine-disrupting chemical might actually be less harmful than a little. Is that confusing? It certainly was to me. It runs counter to everything we understand about chemicals. Toxicologists have always thought of it like this. Imagine a line going progressively higher, like a ramp. More poison, more harm. Just like Paracelsus discovered over 500 years ago. But what Patricia is saying, it could look like a U. Big effects at small doses, less at moderate levels, and something entirely different at high doses. There are lots of complicated reasons why this confusing thing might be happening. The most common reason that researchers give is that maybe at small doses, some chemical reaction is happening, but at a higher dose, it produces this kind of counter-reaction that just cancels everything out. There are lots of other reasons, but long story short, they all sort of amount to saying one thing. These biological processes aren't as simple and predictable 
as that linear toxicology model. So Patricia publishes her surprising paper on the BPA-lined cages. This was in the early 2000s. For a scientific paper, it got a lot of attention. I probably did 30 interviews in, in a month. At the end of almost every interview, people would ask, you know, is there anything else we should have asked or is there anything else you want to tell us? This is pretty standard reporting practice. It's like saying, tell me what I don't even know I need to know. And Patricia, she started to take this question seriously. And at the time, I was really concerned about baby bottles because baby bottles were all polycarbonate plastic. Which has BPA in it. The same kind of plastic that was used in the BPA-lined cages in Patricia's lab. And I started talking to parents who said, well, yeah, you know, you get baby bottles and you put them in the dishwasher because you want them to be really clean and sterile. And after a while, they start getting hazy. And I went, oh my gosh, because we knew when they were getting hazy, they were really starting to give off the chemical. So at the end of these interviews, when the reporter said, is there anything else I'm not asking you? I would say, well, you know, one of the things that bothers me is we're placing this chemical into the hands of the most vulnerable segment of our population, our babies and our infants, whose bodies are developing. And I said that a few times and didn't think anything of it. And a few weeks later, I got a call from a baby bottle manufacturer who said, you know, what the hell's going on there? I mean, we're getting all these calls from consumers asking what our baby bottles are made of. Maybe you're wondering at this point, where are all the regulators? The Food and Drug Administration regulates BPA around food. They wouldn't do an interview, but we did find a scientist who works with regulators, L. Earl Gray Jr. He goes by Earl Gray. Earl's been around the issue of endocrine disruptors and BPA specifically for a long time. His first postdoc after he got his PhD was at the Environmental Protection Agency. It was 1976, just six years after the EPA was created. There it was still sort of formulating and growing, and everybody was just excited about the work and the environment. When Theo and Fred organized Wingspread in 1991, they invited Earl. By that time, he was a full-fledged EPA scientist. He remembers the Frank Lloyd Wright architecture at Wingspread. Yeah, it had three-legged chairs. If you sat them, you'd fall over. Earl had already been looking at these chemicals and pesticides. You know, I was already interested in endocrine-disrupting chemicals and toxicology, so I wouldn't call it a religious experience. Still, Earl was inspired by Wingspread. It was exciting and sort of generated a lot of enthusiasm to continue the work. Probably the next 20 years of my career was spent on something related to endocrine-disrupting chemicals and screening and testing that came out of that first meeting. But this is where he and Fred part ways. Because Earl, he doesn't really think BPA is a problem. Other endocrine disruptors, yes, but not BPA. I think if you look at all of the chemicals that we're exposed to, it just seems they're overly focused on this one chemical. And with the amount of work, there haven't been consistent low-dose adverse effects shown. Earl still works for the EPA but he spoke to us on his own time, not as a representative of the Environmental Protection Agency. So this is all his opinion, not necessarily the agency's. But on this point, the regulators do agree with his assessment. 
He thinks a lot of the BPA research isn't great. It's not designed well, it can't be reproduced. But the disagreement goes deeper than that. He says regulatory toxicologists like himself don't even agree that the endocrinologists are demonstrating harmful changes. So some consider any change in any endpoint from bisphenol A an adverse effect. So endocrinologists are seeing changes in animals or in human cells, and they're concluding this is bad. Earl will say, yeah, there's something happening here, but is it actually bad? There are definitions, and the one that I generally use is an adverse effect has to have some functional effect that adversely affects the functioning or health or well-being of an individual or their offspring. So there may be subtle changes that you're uncertain about whether they're adverse or not. For example, imagine an animal is dosed with BPA and there are changes in the brain. The endocrinologists are going to worry. But have they proven that this will result in a functional or behavioral change? The regulators will say, according to our interpretation, you haven't proven anything. It's not clear demonstration of an adverse effect that would lead to regulation of the chemical. Or there's the issue of the U-shaped curve. Earl doesn't think it's as common as the endocrinologists seem to. At least, he doesn't think they've proven it's common when it comes to BPA. This is one of the most frustrating parts of this disagreement, and it shows how scientists actually make judgments. It's not as simple as finding something out in the world. Because evidence doesn't speak for itself. It's interpreted. You have to remember, scientists like Fred and Patricia are finding something in a lab, and then they're extrapolating. Endocrinologists are usually working on animals. When they work with humans, it's largely correlational research. Like, what they're doing is measuring how much BPA is in somebody's urine, and then saying, hey, looks like it coincides with a higher incidence of prostate cancer. It's very hard to have definitive proof BPA did it. So you've got these two groups of scientists looking at the very same issue and reaching radically different conclusions because they have different methods and different standards of proof. Well, they do two different jobs. This is Heather Pattisall. She's a toxicologist and neuroscientist at North Carolina State University. Yeah, so I did not get my PhD in toxicology. I was really interested in neuroscience and actually evolutionary neuroscience and how things in the environment can shape the brain over time. And then she stumbled into BPA. And, well, you know how that ends. And been working on it ever since. Heather is a researcher at a university. So not a regulator, but she knows toxicology and she knows what makes regulators tick. She's a good guide to understanding both worlds. So she says, as an academic, I address a hypothesis. So let's say the hypothesis is BPA, you know, does something in the brain, right? She might design an experiment where she doses mice with BPA and then she tries to figure out, is the brain affected? What's the best way to see if the brain is affected? What can I measure or observe in the brain that will give me insights? Those are the kinds of questions that she asks. A regulatory toxicologist doesn't do that. A regulatory toxicologist follows a series of protocols 
to see if a chemical produces an outcome. And someone else defines what those protocols are. These regulatory toxicologists are not independent scholars asking the questions that interest them. They're following protocols set by federal and sometimes international regulatory agencies. These protocols, they're pretty rigid. And they're not particularly sophisticated. Regulatory toxicologists, if they want to know if a chemical is bad for the brain, they expose an animal and weigh the brain. That's it. Heather says that weighing the brain won't tell you what's going on in it. And so in an academic setting, she's able to develop tools that are much more sensitive. Instead of just weighing the brain and not anything more than that, you know, our laboratory could look at the size of different regions in the brain, um, gene expression of different hormone receptors and other targets. There's other differences, too, between what academics might do and what regulatory agencies do. Um, they also have a different record-keeping system. This might sound like, are you kidding me? Record-keeping? But this is important because your records are your data. Back in the 70s, there were contract laboratories that were running toxicity testing for companies, and they were basically cheating. They were basically fudging the data. So in order to prevent this problem, they created a record-keeping system called Good Laboratory Practices, or GLP. So you can design an absolutely horrific, terrible experiment... <laughs> And have it still be GLP, because it's really nothing but a record-keeping system. Um, but toxicologists have really come to revere that as being kind of the gold standard for how you report and collect data. Academics don't typically use that because basically the, the infrastructure required to do it just doesn't work. For one, it's a lot more expensive, and academics are always counting pennies. But the regulatory scientists... They might look at the academic record-keeping practices and say, no good, doesn't follow GLP. And so if I asked you to find all of the papers on bisphenol A and brain and read them all and make a decision, you'd probably find about 500 papers and you'd apply some filters. Maybe you would say, well, I'm not going to look at the fish studies because that's just too far from humans or... I only want papers where they looked at both sexes, not just males, you know, blah, blah, blah. The filters are supposed to separate out the most relevant studies to help make a decision. So the filters that regulatory agencies use are extreme. They're extreme. So for FDA, for example, in their last assessment of bisphenol A um, on reproductive and neural health, they literally combed through thousands of papers and they ended up using one only one to make the decision that bisphenol A at levels we're exposed to is safe. These groups literally don't recognize each other's papers. Remember Thomas Kuhn, the guy I mentioned at the start? He might have said that these are incommensurate paradigms. A researcher I spoke to literally said they can both be right in their own domains. How could that be? Well, the endocrinologist would say, we think our evidence is strong. It's met our thresholds for proof, and the risks are grave. So we've got to stop using BPA. If you accept the premises of their paradigm, they're right. The other side says, we don't agree. They say, you haven't met our threshold for proof. And if you accept the premises of their paradigm, well, then they're right. And this is why science alone isn't going to resolve this it spills out into the realm of politics. 
In 2008, after years of consumer pressure, the debate over BPA made its way into Congress. We're here today to discuss the safety of using phthalates and uh, bisphenol A in consumer products. This is Representative Jan Schakowsky chairing a meeting in the House Subcommittee on Consumer Protection. In a room with blue carpets, wearing a blue blazer, and seated at a raised dais, Schakowsky declared, There's a wide and sometimes contradictory body of scientific evidence regarding the possible harms of using these substances and products. She shuffled through a series of experts seated at a table below her. Norris Alderson, Associate Commissioner for Science at the FDA, assured her there was nothing to worry about. Although our review is ongoing, at this time we have no reason to recommend that consumers stop using products containing BPA. A large body of evidence indicates that currently marketed products containing BPA, such as baby bottles and food containers, are safe. The previous month, Stephen Henches, the senior director of the American Chemistry Council and industry lobby, had echoed the FDA's conclusions in another committee. After more than five decades of use, no reliable evidence has shown bisphenol A or phthalates in consumer products to have caused any harm to any person. In 2008, Senator Chuck Schumer proposed a bill to ban BPA from kids' products, but the American Chemistry Council lobbied against it. In fact, they spent $4 million on lobbying that year. Schumer's bill failed. In 2009, he tried again. Same outcome. But by this point, baby bottle manufacturers were facing so much consumer pressure. They did a 180. They just decided to pull it voluntarily. And so then, the BPA-free label was born. It became good marketing. Like putting that organic sticker on a banana. Eventually, the manufacturers even went to the FDA and they asked for a ban on BPA in baby bottles. They weren't using BPA anymore, so this ban would just help comfort consumers. The FDA made it official in 2012. Well, we've got some good news for consumers. The Food and Drug Administration is banning an often controversial chemical product that you find in a lot of plastics. The FDA says companies can no longer use bisphenol A or BPA in plastics used to make baby bottles and sippy cups. And I sat back and thought, oh my gosh, you know, this is how you change the world is consumers. Consumers ask for what they want and they get it. I, no, I can honestly say that that's probably the single most life-changing event of this whole thing for me. But all that happened was that manufacturers removed BPA from baby bottles. Just baby bottles and sippy cups. This is much bigger than that, though. Focusing on the bottles was, well, easy. Babies are defenseless, you know, and so the media could really latch onto it. But what about teethers or toys? And also, it's not just babies. BPA is used in water bottles, cans for food, receipt paper, a million things. Could pregnant women affect their pregnancies by eating too much canned food? So the public concern around BPA was growing. We have a health alert for you this morning. Brand new, a report just released at midnight found two 
of every three canned foods tested have a toxic chemical in the lining that could really negatively impact your health. And by this point, the evidence against BPA was piling up. There was research that showed that BPA is causing abnormal eggs. But it wasn't just affecting pregnant women and their babies. Evidence suggested that it changed sperm counts, that it caused irregular testes. It showed changes in the brain and early puberty. Breast and prostate cancer, infertility, type 2 diabetes, obesity, asthma, even attention deficit disorder. But for now, the Food and Drug Administration is not ready to sound the alarm, telling Lou Dobbs tonight, quote, at this time, FDA is not recommending that anyone discontinue using products that contain BPA while the agency continues. Honestly, this is super confusing. Academic researchers are telling us that BPA is bad, while government regulators are saying BPA is fine. Who do we believe? The government realized this kind of confusion was a problem. The paradigm battle couldn't continue. It had to be reconciled. So in 2012, the National Toxicology Program, or NTP, launched a research initiative called Clarity BPA. The idea was NTP, along with FDA researchers, would conduct a standard toxicology study. You know, with the good laboratory practices, the set protocols and guidelines. That would be the core study. But they'd also do something unusual. They'd work with outside researchers, academics, who would look at things that the NTP and the FDA weren't looking at, according to their own models, with their own questions and assumptions. These would be called the grantee studies. There were 14 of them. Fred was one of the grantees, and Heather was too. So I, I saw this as a huge opportunity to collaborate with a regulatory agency uh, to do public good. You know, I had already run 30 or 40 experiments with bisphenol A before. We, we definitely saw outcomes in brain. We definitely saw outcomes in our animals. And I really felt like this is a chemical that's definitely impacting human health. And to have an opportunity to work with FDA to convince them under their rules and in their sandbox, I thought was an enormous uh, opportunity. The FDA did not make anyone available for an interview, but the person who was in charge of the NTP at the time was Linda Birnbaum. My name is Linda Birnbaum. Um, I'm recently retired after 40 years of government service. How involved were you with some of the BPA research at the NTP and Clarity BPA specifically? So the answer is very, <laughs> um, very much so involved with BPA. Clarity wanted to bring the two groups together. And Linda thought this might also help refresh the staunch government guidelines that didn't take into account so much of the new academic research. Some of my real interest was I was beginning to feel that the, guide, the guideline studies uh, had been developed in the last century, in the 20th century, and here we were in the 21st century, and that there were questions that hadn't been asked, you know, in the 1970s or 80s or even 90s because we didn't know enough to ask them then. And now we knew that there were other things we had to consider. And I, my concern or the question I was asking is, are the guideline studies asking those questions? So the regulatory scientists, they got to work on the core study. They did it the old way, asking the old questions. They were looking for structural changes in the organs, mostly weighing them. And the 14 grantees all over the country, they got to work on their studies. Imagine it. 
these academic researchers and the FDA teaming up, and finally they're going to have some answers. In 2018, the FDA wrapped up their core study and released the findings. A massive government study suggests that consumers have little reason to fear plastic products containing the chemical BPA. But Heather was like, wait, what? That's not how that was supposed to work. We were supposed to take all of the um, data, all the outcomes from all the studies, the core and the grantees, and come up with a grand interpretation of what BPA is doing in the body. Remember, they're trying to bring the two paradigms together. Instead, the FDA released their own assessment without consulting Heather or the other grantees. That same year, Heather went to a conference where FDA officials presented their clarity findings. And in the Q&A, when someone asked one of the FDA scientists what they thought about the grantee studies, they dismissed them and said all of the data was basically garbage and totally invaluable and unnecessary and they should be able to do things their way, and the input from the other people was not useful or appreciated. This is what Daniel Dorge, the FDA presenter, actually said. I don't see a lot of, uh, a lot of advantages, in, uh, so far anyway, in, in, in what the, uh, you know, the extramural research funding initiative has brought into the uh, Clarity Project. Extramural research. That made it sound like the grantee's work was trivial. I mean, I was angry. I wasn't surprised because we'd, we'd seen this behavior now and we knew that they were not, you know, reasonable collaborators at that point anymore. Um, but to hear someone specifically say that out loud is, I was angry. I'm angry as a citizen. I'm angry as a person who lives in this world and gets exposed to these chemicals all the time. And that's just bad science, you know? Like, we as consumers should be angry that the default attitude is that these chemicals are safe when they have evidence generated in their own labs by their own scientists that they're not safe. This was actually the biggest problem in Heather's view. FDA dismissed findings in their own studies that the grantees thought were important. Um, they did have a number of statistically significant outcomes, and they did have a number of concerning effects in their study. The biggest thing was the core study showed an increase of mammary gland abnormalities, a sign of potential breast cancer, in animals receiving some of the lower BPA doses. But they basically dismissed all of them. They said, well, even though it's statistically significant, we don't think it's biologically plausible, so we don't think BPA did this. There were many effects that they saw that occurred, let's say, at some of the lowest doses that were tested. Linda says, indeed, the FDA did see effects, but they didn't follow that predictable ramp. So? Um, the FDA scientists didn't believe that they were biologically meaningful. Again, each paradigm sees things in its own terms. The FDA system is designed to see a ramp. So anything that isn't a ramp gets dismissed, even if it's statistically significant. Which incensed the grantees. The whole point Fred and the other endocrinologists were trying to make was, there is no ramp. Well, FDA's interpretation is based upon their scientific understanding. And there are times that, you know, Honest scientists can look at 
the same data and come to different conclusions. Linda does actually think there are problems at low doses, and the FDA should really start taking them seriously. But so far, they've dug in on their stance. The two groups doesn't look like they're coming together anytime soon. You know, it's disappointing. I, I won't lie. I had very high hopes for clarity, and what happened is incredibly disappointing. In written responses to questions about BPA, the FDA said, quote, Based on FDA's ongoing safety review of the scientific evidence, the available information continues to support the safety of BPA for the currently FDA-approved uses in food containers and packaging. The grantees are going to publish a report summarizing their 14 studies sometime in the fall. And NTP is going to evaluate both the FDA and the grantee studies. That report should be out soon as well. But the scientists we spoke to said it's very unlikely that one report is going to change the FDA's stance. BPA is a $20 billion a year industry, with more than 9 million tons of BPA used each year. If Fred and Patricia got phone calls for their relatively obscure academic papers, imagine what the FDA would be up against. Fred thinks that's partly why the FDA isn't keen to listen. They're not interested in talking with us. We're a threat to the decisions they've made that they're going to have to say to the public, we were wrong about this. And they don't want to do that. And until all of these people die and go away, it's hard to imagine them doing anything but just standing behind a brick wall and saying, we refuse to listen to anything you have to say. Do you think FDA regulations on BPA are currently sufficient to protect people? In my opinion, um, reading a lot of the literature and trying to understand it, I've I think um, there'd be reason to lower the level that FDA uh, believes is safe. Endocrinologists would say that even lowering the levels wouldn't solve the problem. Because this is still a solution based on the old paradigm. And Linda sees that too. She's open to an even more precautionary approach. I think there's evidence that this is a compound which has the potential to be hazardous to human health. In my opinion, I'd like to see it um, more highly regulated or potentially even not used anymore. I think like with many chemicals and many things, we need to start asking questions. How essential is it? Is it really essential? And if it's not really essential, then we should not be using it. Some manufacturers aren't waiting for the FDA to act. Consumers are sufficiently freaked out that they've started to demand more and more BPA-free products. And the industry is responding. There's the BPA-free baby bottles, of course, but now there's Nalgene bottles and BPA-free Tupperware, lots of packaging and toys, even plastic ukuleles, all marked BPA-free. But what are the companies using instead? In 2016, Patricia was in the lab again, this time with her BPA-free cages. What were you studying this time? Oh gosh, the same old thing. No. <laughs> Actually, this time she was studying males and how BPA affects the development of their testes when something happened again. It was deja vu all over again for us. 
we were, you know, 20 years later in the midst of another set of studies when we started to notice that our control data was coming up strange again. And, you know, we'd been through this before. Remember, 20 years ago, Patricia's control animals were accidentally contaminated by BPA-lined cages. So the first thing we thought is, you know, we must be getting, we must be getting contaminated in some way, shape, or form. These BPA-free cages were made of another bisphenol, BPS. A lot of BPA-free products are like this. They may no longer have BPA, but they just replace it with another BPA-like substance. The data that are out there now suggests that, you know, some are the same, some are worse than BPA. This BPA-free thing, I think, has given a lot of consumers a false sense of security. This is what happens when you don't resolve a paradigm battle. If you just focus on one chemical that behaves strangely, you're basically playing whack-a-mole because you're not fixing the issue. Fine, ban BPA, but then BPS comes along, and something else after that. And by the way, BPA is just one example. Endocrine disruptors are everywhere, in all sorts of consumer products, in our sewage and waste, coming out of factories and plants, spewing into our water supplies, often affecting the most marginalized. So this is a much, much bigger story than middle-class consumers revolting against baby bottles. But the toxicologists will say, you haven't even proven BPA is harmful, let alone BPS, or the other chemicals you might call endocrine disrupting. There are tens of thousands of chemicals out there. These things aren't systematically regulated. So the endocrinologists are likely to say, it's impossible for us to go through each one individually and show you they're unsafe. Even if we did, like with BPA, you wouldn't believe us. So maybe we need to change the way we think about chemicals. With endocrine-disrupting chemicals, we should look at them as a special class. At least, that's what an endocrinologist might say. Because if the dose makes the poison idea is wrong, then there is no safe level of exposure. In the European Union, there's a movement in that direction. They're looking at regulating endocrine disruptors as a class. And it's looking like they're going to take a more precautionary approach. But in the U.S., that's not happening. The government doesn't have any specific regulatory designation for endocrine disruptors. Each chemical is tested individually, one by one, looking for safe exposure thresholds. According to them, Paracelsus's idea still reigns. The dose makes the poison. This episode was produced by Irina Zhorov, edited by A.C. Rowe, and me, Gordon Kattuk. Franklin Bartol was our research assistant. Our theme song and original music by our composer, Mike Barber. Fact-checking on this episode by Paulie Legere. Dakota Coop is our graphic designer. Cited's production manager is David Tobias, and Cited's executive producers are me, Gordon Kattuk, and Sam Fenn. This episode was funded in part by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. It's part of a larger project that examines the role of values in science, led by Professor Gunilla Oberg at the University of British Columbia. 
Professor Oberg also provided research guidance to this episode, though the episode does not necessarily reflect the views of Professor Oberg or her project. Slated is produced out of the Center for Ethics at the University of Toronto, which is on the traditional land of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people. Slated is also produced out of the Michael Smith Laboratories at the University of British Columbia. That's on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. <laughs>